morning? Did you expect the snow? I woke up and uh, I didn't expect the snow. And so that means that meant I had some additional work to do to get here. But you know, I I I say this every year and it's so true. When you things have gotten dirty, haven't they? And what happened when you looked out today? It was all covered with snow. And it reminded me once again about our Christian experience. Though our sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They will. If you watched football last night, did you know what the outcome would be? Amazing, wasn't it? And it seems like that's the way it's been. And you know, we just, we talked about praising the Lord. Do you praise the Lord because He knows what's going to happen? He's not surprised. He's not. Isn't that a great comfort this morning to know that the God who loves us also knows all things. That's a wonderful thing. It is. Of late, I've had an opportunity to get into the Word and study a little bit. I just worked my way through Job. And um, that's a wonderful thing. Think about that. I trust you join me in being grateful to God for the way He has lovingly provided us with the Bible. A comprehensive handbook from the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And he authored by one who loves us, who knows us perfectly and individually, not as a mass, but each one. He knows the number of hairs on my head, and they change every day. There's less, and he knows. He's not surprised. The Bible truthfully tells us about who God is and who we are. Jesus' sacrifice that takes care of our sin restores our relationship with the Father and gives us the distinguished privilege to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In a troubled world, we can rest in that brief summary of the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. I've entitled the sermon, A Life Pleasing to God, and their words directly out of today's text. Please join me in an opening word of prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, thank you for providing the Bible. It's detailed. It tells us all about you and how we relate to you. It tells us about our plan of salvation. Today, as we continue our study in Thessalonians on a life pleasing to God, please clear our minds of distractions. Open our ears to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. Help me clearly communicate your truth. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. It worked. I'm checking technology here. (laughs) Context is always an important factor in Bible study. How does today's message fit into the entire book? Let's take a quick look. After a one-verse greeting, Paul launches into the first of two main topics developed in the book. The first topic contained in the first three chapters and taught the last three weeks by Mike, Chad, and Lev is a collection of personal thoughts to the church Paul planted about a year earlier and which he dearly loved and continuously thought about. In expressing his thanksgiving for the church, Paul talks about his joy in their strong faith that shone brightly and positively impacted throughout the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. Paul next provides several reminders. Paul defends his correct presentation of God's truth, tireless work supported by their own tent-making efforts, and points out 
his right motives in dealing with the Thessalonians. Then Paul expresses his concern for the church, in particular with regard to their persecution and his strong desire to provide further teachings to this new church assembly of Christians. Finally, Paul comments on the great report that Timothy provided Paul on the Thessalonian church after his visit. These passages from the first three chapters clearly show the strong, tender pastoral love Paul had for the Thessalonian Christians. In speaking for his work in his midst, in his, in their midst, Paul says that he was gentle as a nursing mother taking care of their children. And then explains that this is the, this is the Thessalonians had become very dear to us. A moment later, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Then Paul notes that he wanted to see them again face to face. When Satan hindered Paul from returning to the church he so loved, and he could bear it no longer, he sent Timothy to learn about their faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted the Thessalonians and his labor would be in vain. At the end of the first section of the book, Paul once again expresses his desire to personally visit the Thessalonians and drops three hints about what he's about to talk about next. He writes, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The three hints about what Paul will be talking about. Abound in love for one another. Establish your hearts blameless in holiness. And the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The introdu- that introduction allows us to outline the rest of the book. We've already covered that greeting in the first section, Paul's personal thoughts. The second section of the book turns to practical instruction. Paul never missed the opportunity to continue to teach the early churches. There are three subsections in this part of the book. A life pleasing to God with its two subjects, moral purity and brotherly love. This is the passage we'll be studying this morning together. Looking ahead next week, KT will be speaking on a very important prophetic passage dealing with death, rapture, and the day of the Lord. Finally, in two weeks, we wrap up our study of 1 Thessalonians as Mark Woodhouse talks about Paul's comments on church relationships, basics of Christian living, and Paul's closing prayer and remarks. Would you please stand and join me in reading our text together? Together, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia and Achaia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be tepid on no one. Please be seated. So let's begin our study here with verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Well, so you wondered, right? You look at the word finally and go finally, and then we've got two chapters. And, you know, that's Paul does that. He does. In fact, in, in, in Philippians, where Paul says, finally, it's the beginning of chapter 3, and then 43 verses later, it, well, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what's finally mean? Well, finally means it's the last section. It's not his last thought, it's his last section. So you remember there are two sections, right? Those personal comments, and now as he switches to practical teaching, he says, finally, he's changing the subject. That's what he's doing. How did Paul choose his topics? Well, while Timothy had provided a generally encouraging report, doubtless he relayed some areas of concern. And Paul was also very aware of the pagan environment of Thessalonica. But we also know that according to 2 Peter 1.21, that men such as Paul spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Point is that God directed Paul to include the topics he did not just for the Thessalonians, but for me and you today. That was part of his plan. As Second Timothy 3.16 notes, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I think we'll all agree this portion of scripture we, that we study this morning is very relevant to our contemporary society. Feel the passion which Paul is speaking about the subject of moral purity as he introduces it. I ask or to request, but that's not enough. But more, I urge you or earnestly or persistently to persuade someone to do something. But that's not it. But even more, to ask, to urge in the Lord Jesus, to give added weight to his word, Paul appealed to the fact that he wrote with the authority of Jesus Christ. Paul wants his readers to clearly understand the importance of the subject he's about to introduce. What is the subject of of Paul's earnest appeal? To walk and please God. 
And there it is. There's a, there's the title of our sermon. To walk worthy is a concept developed in the New Testament. To walk worthy is to live in a way that is consistent with the values of the Lord who saved him. Colossians 1.10 elaborates on this concept. We read, walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing spiritual fruit is a byproduct of righteous life and includes leading folks to Christ, praising God, giving of our physical resources, living a godly life, displaying holy attributes and attitudes like the fruits of the Spirit, and I'm sure there's more that you could add. Spiritual growth can't occur apart from increasing in the knowledge of God. This means a deeper love for God's Word, a more perfect obedience, a strong doctrinal foundation, expanding faith, and greater love for others. We've talked about the New Testament concept of walking now to please God. Romans 8.8 says, They who are in the flesh cannot please God. This means unregenerate man can't please God. The first step a person takes in pleasing God is to believe or put their faith in Jesus Christ. That pleases God. We know that each person who is saved, the angels rejoice. They rejoice. The second step is to obey God. John fourteen fifteen quotes Jesus as saying, If you love me, you will obey my command. But where are the commandments of God found? They're found in the word of God, his inspired word. Back to verse 1. How you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. Based on the encouraging report from Timothy, Paul commends the Thessalonians for walking a life pleasing the Lord that is consistent with the holiness of God. But Paul doesn't stop at what the Thessalonians have done. He continues that you do it more and more. We please God by becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The standard is the perfection of Christ. That transformation is a continual process, and I bet you're glad it is that way. Couldn't do it all at one time. Just couldn't. Do more and more means keep working at it, and that's the challenge for all Christians. That's our daily challenge. Do we fall short? And John says, if you say you don't sin, what are you? You're a liar. He acknowledges that. There's no sinless perfection once you're saved. It's a struggle. We all know that. And that's that can you, but to be more and more all the time. We should regularly ask this question, what have I done today, this week, this year, to do more and more, more and more efforts to become like our Savior, Jesus Christ. A moment ago, we talked about pleasing God and said that for the Christian, pleasing God involves obedience. Here in verse 2, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the instructions he gave them. We read, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. While the specifics are not mentioned, the first three chapters of the book make it very clear 
that Paul had delivered the gospel in word and in deed. He lived the example, and he told them that. He said, follow the example. During his visit, and this is the second missionary trip, part of that visit, he drops in Thessalonica. Remember, he gets thrown out of Philippi, and then he ends up in in Thessalonica. He's there for a while, and uh, they ask him to leave too, don't they? To add additional emphasis to the importance of the instructions, as he did in verse 1, he ascribes the origin and authority of those instructions to who? The Lord Jesus. This isn't Paul. This is God speaking through as he writes to the Thessalonians. All of God's word contains his will, both affirmations and prohibitions. Examples of God's will include the Ten Commandments, the command to love God and to love others as yourself, to love one another, salvation, self-sacrifice, and emphasized here, sanctification. In Christ, we were made holy through his death on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sins. Hebrews 10.10 says, Sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. From the Father's perspective, we are blameless in Christ. We have imputed righteousness, that is, given to us the righteousness of Christ. This work is final and complete and is known as positional sanctification. The lifelong journey of the Christian with its empowerment of the, with the empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit is to continuously purge out sin from our lives and become more like our perfect Savior. This is called progressive sanctification and what is Paul, what Paul is talking about in verse three. Paul describes progressive sanctification as in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he writes, And we all, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Or put it another way, we're being transformed step by step. So God's will is sanctification. The particular aspect of sanctification that Paul emphasizes here in the strongest manner, remember from our earlier verses, to ask, to urge in the Lord Jesus is to abstain from sexual immorality. Stop for a moment to consider the Thessalonica environment. Sexual immorality was pervasive throughout the areas of Paul missionary travels. Notorious centers included Corinth, from which Paul wrote the book of Thessalonians, and Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia. Sexual lucis was not only practiced, but encouraged. Sex was integrated into the pagan religious practices. In the Greek religion, prostitution was considered a priestly prerogative, and extramarital sex was sometimes considered an act of worship. Hebert, a commentator, notes, immoral sex was regarded as a matter of indifference and even defended as a necessity of nature, like eating or drinking. As you recall, the Thessalonian church was about a year old when Paul wrote his letter to him, his first first letter to him. The saints were saved out of this immoral environment and the lure of sexual immorality was an ever-present threat. Can you imagine 
based on what I've described, what, what that was, society was like. What is sexual immorality? Let's define that for a moment. It's basically every form of sexual practice outside God's will as revealed in his word. It's that simple. It can be summed up as sex outside the bounds of heterosexual marriage. Sex before marriage, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, all these are perversions of God's will. God hates them because they are perversions of his perfect plan. For his final creative effort, man and woman who are uniquely made in his image. You say, I haven't committed the act. But remember, the Bible condemns not just the impure actions, but also impure thoughts. Jesus said, but I say unto you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now consider the characteristics of our current culture. Quote, enlightened thinking advocates insist sexual freedom is a must, meaning that most any kind of sex is okay. It's more and more difficult to find school-aged virgins. I first, first I wrote high school, but that's not true anymore either. Sad. A 2020 Pew Research found that half of those acknowledging they were Christians said casual sex between consenting adults is okay. The Journal of Psychology and Christianity reported that as many as 65% of men and 55% of women will have an extramarital affair by the time they're 40. Finally, there are those who openly advocate that laws prohibiting, preventing pedophilia, sex with kids, should be repealed, actively being talked about. Many more facts could be shared, but the conclusion would only be more definite. The U.S. culture is steadily slipping away from God's holy standards on many fronts, but certainly with regarding sexual relationships. So what's God's will on sexual relationships? Paul, in his passage on Thessalonians, highlights it from a what-is-not-permitted point of view. Physically, there is to be no sex outside the bounds of heterosexual marriage. That's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus makes it clear that an impure thought is as bad as the actual deed. So we've considered what is not God's will with regard to sex, but sex is part of God's perfect creation. Physically, sex between a married man and woman is a wonderful thing created by God for pleasure and procreation. Genesis states, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hebrews 13.4 notes that marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. The Greek word translated undefiled means uncontaminated, pure, or set apart. It's the same word that's used to describe Jesus Christ as our high priest. I, I point that out just because I think, you know, when you think of 
of sex, it's sort of like, well, that's bad. Do we talk about that? And the answer is no. Actually, there's there's a lot of very positive stuff about sex, and that's my point. The human marriage relationship is a picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, quoting from Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then adds, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. John MacArthur offers the following helpful explanation. In the New Testament, a mystery identifies some reality hidden in the past and revealed in the New Testament age. Marriage is a sacred reflection of the magnificence and beautiful mystery of the union between the Messiah and his church. Point is that sex is a beautiful thing that God created. Mentally, with regard to sex, what is God's will? Philippians offers a far different picture than what the world constantly forces upon us when Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul, having clearly stated that one must abstain from sexual immorality, now provides some supporting details. First, he notes that each one of you know how to, con- know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Scholars admit that there are two possible ways to interpret the Greek words translated, control his own body. Control his own body may be properly interpreted as either the wife one acquires or the body one possesses. Scholars are also divided on which interpretation is correct. I agree with John MacArthur's position that Paul was thinking of the body one possesses, not the one, not the wife one acquires. Three points MacArthur makes to support that view are that being married doesn't eliminate sexual purity issues. And if Paul meant that, meant the wife one acquires, it would mean that sexual purity is just a male issue, which is not true. And that interpretation would also contradict Paul's position on the exalted state of singleness he describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Moving on, for the Christian to control his body in holiness is to control it in accordance with the laws of God. That's holiness. God is holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. For the Christian to control his body in honor is to control it in accordance with the highest human standards, or in a manner intrinsically worthy of respect. Paul now contrasts holy and honorable control of sexual desires with the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who know not God. The word Gentiles is used by Paul in a spiritual sense for those who do not know God and do not abide by his holy standards. Further, without an indwelling Holy Spirit... Unbelievers have no way to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. I earlier described the perversive, perversive sexual immorality of Thessalonica and surrounding cities. 
our current secular, secular culture, which denies God and the truth of his word, is also characterized by ever-growing sexual immorality. In contrast to believers who do not know God and are sexually immoral, Christians know God and his holy standards and must abide by them. Having commented on the runaway passions of the heathen, Paul elaborates further on why Christians should control their sexual desires. He writes in verse 6 that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Earlier, Paul argued that the Christians should not be sexually immoral because a Christian is called to be holy. Here, Paul makes the point that Christians avoid sexually immoral relationships because of harm it does to others. Sexual immorality is wrong for the initiator, but for the initiator who causes a partner to also be dragged into sin. The initiator takes advantage of his partner by fanning the fires of passion until self-control is lost. Paul continues by giving additional reasons why immoral sexual activities are to be avoided. First, he writes in, in verse 6, Because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God to be the avenger means he will make sure each person pays the just penalty for their sexual immorality. The Christian should abstain from sexual uncleanness because God's character of holiness and justice demands that he judge sin. He must do it. Now think about who God is. Do you want him to be the adventurer? All-knowing, all-powerful. That is God, the adventurer. In Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul goes into further detail about how serious God is about prosecuting those who are sexually immoral. He writes, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 7, Paul provides an additional reason the Christian should avoid sexual impropriety. For God has not called us for impurity, but to holiness. There's a recurring theme, isn't it? If you really study this passage and look, you find the passage is full of the word holiness. God's standards. Holy, holy, holy. Here Paul appeals to the essential nature of the Christian. Once again, he points out the Christian is called to a life of holiness. He is saved out of the world, dominated He is saved out of a world dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sexual impurity is contrary and incompatible with the call of God to a life separated from sin and committed to holiness. Paul sums up his fervent warning against sexual immorality by stating in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul makes two points. First, the quote man, the quote man Paul is referring to is Paul. Paul is saying, 
I may be the author, but understand I'm speaking the truth of God. Therefore, if you reject what I write, you are rejecting God. Second, Paul calls attention to the gift of the Holy Spirit to every believer. As a believer submits to the Holy Spirit, he gains the power to control his body, resisting sexual immorality, even in an immoral climate, like Thessalonica, like Dubuque, Iowa. There is obvious direct application for each of us. The temptations of our culture are strong and continuous. But praise God, the indwelling Holy Spirit teaches us God's value system and gives us the power to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's good news. Christians sin. In love, Jesus has already paid the penalty for those sins. All that is required is to genuinely confess those sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's just huge, isn't it? He's not a one-time guy. He's not. He loves us. Did he know we're going to sin? He did. Does he know we're going to keep sinning? He does. But what has he done? His grace is without limit. His grace is without limit. And the price that Jesus paid is, is take care of it all. It's all there. What a wonderful thing just to stop and you think about that. However, though sin may be covered by forgiveness, the consequences of sin may linger. Sexual sins impact many and often for a very long time. Unplanned pregnancies, physical and mental injuries, broken and strained personal, family, and professional relationships are regular issues that you and I know about. God hates sexual immorality because it's unholy, but his holy standards also protect us from the many long-term consequences of immoral sexual relations. Don't do it says God through Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians. Okay, heavy stuff. Next subject. (laughs) Paul's first exhortation about life pleasing to God was a stern warning about what not to do. His second exhortation is strong encouragement about what to do, specifically to love one another. Reading verses 9 and 10, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all brothers throughout Macedonia. The Apostle John in his epistle strongly advocates brotherly love based on loving and the sacrificial work of Jesus at the cross. Jesus is the ultimate example of the sacrificial love that should inspire every believer to practice brotherly love. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 
Genuine love is about personally and sacrificially giving with the best interests of others in mind. This heavenly brand of brotherly love helps believers see and treat others as God does. Such love accompanies, encourages, exhorts, supports, overlooks other shortcoming, rejoices, and cries together. The result is a body with synergistic energy that overcomes the troubles of the world and is united in the pursuit of accomplishing God's work on earth and thrives on the hope and joy of eternal life. Note that Paul says that no one needed to write the Thessalonians about brotherly love because they had been taught by God. Christians learned some lessons from earthly teachers, others by the word of God. Still other lessons are learned directly from the indwelling Holy Spirit. John 14, 26 records Jesus as saying, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send you in my name, will teach you all things. Paul goes on to state that he's well aware of the Thessalonians' love, probably as as part a part of uh, Timothy's report and the fact that the Thessalonians had in their love for God and the fellow believers and other assemblies become famous throughout the province of Macedonia. But Paul, while commending the Thessalonians for their brotherly love, encourages them to do more and more, more and more. The standard is God's supreme manifestation of love for us. Paul writes in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Another wonderful thing, isn't it? I have to stop and I think about that and I think if someone has messed on me, boy, it's hard for me to see through that. Think of how many times we've messed on the Lord. And what is he? Well, he died. He died knowing all these sins that were going to happen. But he died for us. And if we sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Wonderful, wonderful. I just, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. But that is our God. As the Apostle John so clearly writes in his epistle, as we grow in our love for God and recognize and appreciate the Christian brotherhood, our love should grow and grow. Having told the Thessalonians to demonstrate brotherly love more and more, more, Paul offers three particulars of how this should be done. First, live quietly. The word for quietly doesn't mean less talkative, but rather to be settled or calm. Paul was telling the Thessalonians to be less nervous, anxious, frantic. A person who's frantic is not only a bother to others, yeah, but the unsettledness can interfere in their spiritual life and growth in Christ. The second specific Paul mentions with regard to brotherly love is to mind your own affairs. To generally offer help when others need it is commendable. But to be constantly interjecting oneself in other people's business causes resentment. King Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs 25, 17. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his full of you and hate you. There's uh, That's from the wisest man. <laughs> the third demonstration of brotherly love that Paul encourages the Thessalonians to engage in is to work with your hands as we instructed you to. This is loving because a self-supporting person is not a burden to others. It also means less idle time 
in which uh, to possibly be a busybody and meddle in the affairs of others. Perhaps some in the congregation had been influenced by the Greeks who hated manual labor. Perhaps some were sitting idly by waiting for the Lord's return. Whatever the case, Paul says, work is the right thing to do. As we learned earlier in chapter 2, Paul sets the example. Remember that while he was staying in Thessalonica with the Thessalonians, he not only had a full schedule teaching the believers and proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue, but also worked to make sure his team was not a burden on the Thessalonians. That's what he did. He didn't go there and say, you owe it to me. Yeah, hey, when's the next meal? Unfortunately, idleness continued to plague the Thessalonians, and Paul delivers much stronger medicine in the third chapter, his second letter, where he condemns idle busybodies who do not work. He emphatically states, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat, is what he says. Having stated three practical applications of brotherly love, Quiet, live quietly, mind your own affairs and work. Paul provides the reason why these things are important, he writes, so that you may walk properly, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Doing these loving actions will win the respect of non-Christians and in so doing brings glory to God. On numerous occasions, New Testament authors express the importance of Christians' testimony to outsiders and unbelievers. Ultimately, such honorable actions will bring respect and glory to God and may also result in their conversion. The loving actions will also be very much appreciated by fellow believers who do not feel taken advantage of. Well, we've said a lot of words this morning, but here's some bullets to take away as we close our, our, our service. Sex between a married man and woman is a wonderful thing created by God for pleasure and procreation. Sex outside the bounds of heterosexual marriage is immoral, and God will judge it. Continue to grow in grace. That is sanctification. We talked about that. That step-by-step process of being more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ by doing more and more, especially in this text, brotherly love. Love, love. Live quiet lives and mind your own business. Work diligently and be dependent on no one. That's what Paul teaches here, not only to the Thessalonians, but to us this morning. And it's ready for application to our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And, and some of the things we, we read are, are tougher. And yet today we acknowledge holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Father, I pray that we'll be more sensitive to your standards. I pray that we will live pure lives that are pleasing in your sight. I pray that we will be more and more more and more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that in all we do and say will be measured by your holiness, and our desire will be to be more like you. Our Father, thank you again. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and our lives. 
Help us to be yielded to your voice. I pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.